if you have one. Uh, there are some empty seats up here. I know fairly crowded tonight. So um, last week we uh, began a two-week journey through a very important passage in the scripture in James 2. Uh, the subtitle of Faith Without Works is Dead. In fact, our thesis verse that we saw last week came from verse 17. The scripture says this in James 2.17, cue the slide. Uh, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, uh, is dead. And if you're like me, I always walk away from passages uh, such as this, wondering why I should care. Uh, that may seem like a trite question, but like for me, uh, the, the text becomes so much more relevant if I can understand why it is that I would care about a very powerful passage like this. Uh, that question leads me to ask this. Uh, best movie scene in any movie that you've seen. I, I'm sure that if we began to go around the room, you would have many, like scenes that have changed your life, absolutely wrecked you, messed you up, made you cry, made you laugh. If someone were to ask me, Mark, what are the top ten movie scenes you've ever seen? Definitely be a scene from uh, Braveheart in there. Uh, a couple scenes from Tommy Boy uh, certainly have <laughs> deeply influenced me. Uh, a scene or two from The Dark Knight. Uh, any, uh, any, any, any of you guys excited about The Dark Knight Rises here in a couple weeks? going to be pretty sweet. There'd probably be at least three scenes from The Notebook that I would include. I'm totally joking. I'm not serious at all. It's the worst movie ever. Any, listen, any, seriously, this is like a, this is a firm belief statement here, all right? Any movie that starts out with my wife saying like, honey, like all the girls say that, you know, you just cry a lot in this movie. I'm instantly like, like, why are we watching this, you know? Um, but listen, I know some of you guys are a wee bit younger, but uh, one of my favorite scenes from any movie ever is uh, from a little movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, I know you guys think you know Indiana Jones because you saw the most recent one. You don't, okay? <laughs> if you haven't seen the old school ones, Harrison Ford was like on, on verge of a heart attack that entire movie, all right? He, he used to be young and a stallion, okay? Now, there's this one scene, right, where uh, he's walking through this cavernous, uh, dangerous place, and he comes to a precipice or a large opening, right? Is that the right usage of that word? It sounded right, right there. Okay, either way, it's like an abyss. There's a large opening. And the, the place where he needs to get to is across the precipice, okay? And, um, but the problem is that there's nothing there. At least he doesn't think so. And uh, so he starts thinking to himself because he's, uh, he's, he's heard these things that, that there is something there. And he's um, been, been told that there, you know, he's going to have to take a step of faith. And so the, as the movie goes, he like lifts up his boot and the, the camera shows like the bottom of his shoe. And I, I vowed never ever to show a movie clip here ever, but I, I did. Is it cool if I show a picture? This would be fun. Um, so there he is. So, so he, takes, he takes his boot and he can't see the bridge that's there. And he like leans forward and, and finds it, um, the bridge to be there and sturdy. And when the camera angle changes, it shows that the bridge was being camouflaged and was there all along. And uh, it's an interesting scene that I always think of in terms of uh, faith. Faith without works is dead. And uh, the reason why I care, the reason why I believe you should care, is because the Lord is daily, by the minute, by the second, teaching me more 
and more what it looks like to trust in Him. And honestly, one big bothersome thing on my heart, especially tonight, is I feel like we have lessened and generalized trusting God so much that it's lost its weight. We're asked minute by minute, do you trust God? And we look at that statement very generally instead of specifically. The, the specific question that we're being asked is, do you trust that He's loving? Do you trust that He's faithful? Do you trust that He's good? Do you trust that He's gracious and merciful, that He's slow to anger and that He's a quick to be loving? Do you trust all those things about God? And then as you come across your life and the circumstances and the things that come across your path, you're being asked all the time, do you trust me? Or do you want to grab the steering wheel? Or do you think you're in control? Or do you think this is all about you? So when James says faith without works is dead, I personally and I pray many of you are on a huge journey of learning what it looks like to live more by faith that produces good works in my life. And so tonight, if you're joining us, this is part two of what we started last week. It's a heavy night. If you came and you wanted to do Christian jumping jacks, this is not your night to be here. If you wanted to learn more about the scripture in a place that's very honest and vulnerable, that's what we are here, okay? I don't know what church background you're coming from. If you've ever been in a church before, I'm going to be vulnerable about my struggles. I'm also going to be vulnerable about the fact that we have one answer, all of us, and that's the Lord Jesus. With that said, open your Bibles to James chapter 2 or turn in your phones or whatever it is that you're using for the scripture these days. Turn there if you could. James chapter 2, we're going to study all the way uh, from verses 18 to 26. A lot of text tonight to cover. Uh, it's going to be a blast, I hope. And when you guys are there, say, I am there. Amen. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. A lot over here. The rest of you have fallen behind. Uh, here we go, verse 18. Let's start with James 2, verse 18. But uh, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and the scripture says, shudder. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Question mark. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was complemented by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled in saying, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a, what's that? A, a friend of God, the rest of you, uh, a little slow on the hooked on phonics. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Strap on the seatbelt. Let's start here with uh, verse 18. Uh, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, what's amazing is Jesus lived on this earth for a period of time and was incredibly focused on ministry and discipleship for three of those years. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record his acts, his teachings, his miracles during that period of time. And all of the writers who write after Jesus are quoting things and substantiating things that Christ himself taught. Are we together, okay? Uh, the Bible isn't a bunch of random teachings that somehow weave together. It's God's story, which he has intentionally been writing from the beginning of time, and he will intentionally uh, carry out. 
uh, all the way to the return of Jesus and then the restoration of all things. The reason why I say that is because this verse reminds me of words that Jesus said in Matthew 7. He says uh, this, talking about uh, faith and works. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, uh, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I've longed to say that in a scripture before. Isn't ravenous just an amazing word? Top 10 words of all time, ravenous has to be number 11. Uh, you will recognize, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? If you're not a grapist, uh, that, is, uh, that is true. That, that did not come out right. Um, I did not, seriously, I did not mean that at all that way. Are you a grape gatherer? Um, please don't ever repeat that. We're taking that out of... <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. <laughs> I don't even know how we recover from that. You, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, by the disease tr uh, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, nor, do, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This affirms what James is saying, is that, listen, faith and works, they, they can't be disjointed. If you are a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus, your faith will be proven by your works. And the reason we shared about that last week was because the Spirit is given to true followers of Christ. And when the Spirit is given... It will, as we said last week, produce good works. Now, this all makes me think about jobs that I would be horrible at. Interesting tra uh, transition. Work with me. Have you ever thought about that before? Jobs that if you were given uh, the task or if you were employed to do, you would absolutely be wretched at. Okay? I have many that are on my list. Uh, probably at the top of my list of jobs I'd be horrible at is, uh, is, is to be a farmer. Um, can you picture me as a farmer? Anyone here? Right? Can you picture me sitting in a tractor for any semblance of time? I mean, I have the patience of a 30-second stopwatch, let alone the ability to, like, sit in the top of a tractor and go row by row. I would have grooves, like, worn out in the, in the bottom of the tractor for my legs constantly moving, right? I'm not a farmer, which is interesting because my dad was a farmer, and his dad was a farmer, and his dad was a farmer, and his dad's dad's, and I'm completely confused now in my family tree. But anyway, there were a lot of farmers in my family. Heidi's, my wife's family, they're all farmers. When I get around them and they're talking farming, I'm just like, yeah, so how, how's the corn these days, you know? Like, how, can I get the, and then, you know, farmers, they eat their corn like without the little sticky things on the end, you know? As for me and my house, I need those things, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you guys got, I, you know, I'm not touching this thing, you know? I would be a horrible, I would be, I would be absolutely a horrible farmer, all right? Um, it takes time, it takes patience, and you're always at the whims of the weather and the changes of the seasons. It's crazy. What's amazing about the scripture is how, man, uh, how many images there are in language referring to God as some kind of farmer, cultivator, fertilizer, uh, and, and that he in me has, and many of you, given me, planted in me his spirit. And what I love about how much I struggle with farming I say all this to say, like, God's an amazing farmer. He uh, waters the soil at the right time. He uh, stirs his word and fertilizes my heart at the right time. It's sunny when it needs to be. And 
I love the fact that the Lord reaps the harvest at the right time. You guys see what I'm saying? Like, and so when the Lord plants the Spirit in you, do you guys understand? Like, it will produce fruit. Are we together? Like, He doesn't plant a field and it come back void. And that's what James is saying. He's writing to an audience that are struggling getting from faith to works. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if a tree is good, made good by God, it will produce fruit because God is a great farmer. When he fertilizes, it grows. And if you're here tonight and you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm just kind of in a growing season. I say praise God. That is amazing. Why? Because the more growth and the more maturity, like he will keep growing you. We never stop growing. He's a great farmer. And so as James begins this part two of his argument, he's bringing everyone back into his thesis statement. If you are a follower of Christ, you will have good works because you're a tree that's been made good by the Spirit of God and the grace of Christ. Are we together? Okay. Now he adds this really weird verse here. Uh, next slide. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You've been longing for some kind of uh, demonology discussion. Well, here you go. Uh, the first part of this is uh, really, really interesting. You believe that God is, is one. I know many of you guys have quoted this verse in the wrong context, I'm sure. Like, dude, the demons believe in the Lord, right? And yeah, like that's kind of what this is saying, but it's focused on the fact that, that they believe that, that and, and the, the, the readers and the audience here believes that God is one. It's a monotheistic Verse, there's one God in three persons. Now, he's writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians. And interestingly enough, every morning and evening, as a pious Jew would do, they would recite this passage from Deuteronomy that's called the Shema. The Shema says this in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? Is one. The Lord is one. So you shall love the Lord uh, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So it's very intentional that James says, yeah, you think that the Lord is one? Yeah, you say it every morning and evening. Like you say it all the time. Uh, even the demons believe that God is, uh, exists and is something. And, and that doesn't mean a thing. Um, I did a study a couple years ago on demons specifically. Sounds interesting. It was. Uh, my biggest finding was this, about nine mentions in the entire Old Testament, long time of history, nine mentions in the Old Testament about uh, demons, Satan, Hasatan is the Hebrew word, means the accuser, only nine mentions. Jesus comes on the scene, begins his ministry, and all of a sudden Satan comes out the woodwork. I mean, Satan is there, uh, many of you guys have heard me teaching on this, two out of the four Gospels uh, record that one of the first miracles Jesus ever does is an exorcism. So it's as if like the Christ and the reality of Jesus brings out the enemy, which to me kind of legitimizes this whole thing, doesn't it? Like there's certain things in the scripture where if you don't like take it for what it is, you just miss it. The fact that Christ comes on the scene and all of a sudden there's a huge presence of demonic activity tells me that the Lord is legit, all right? Tells me that the enemy is worried, so much so that it's recorded in Matthew uh, when the demons say this. Check this out, Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side, that's Jesus, to the country of uh, uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. It's hard for us to picture that, okay, unless you've seen like Exorcism of Emily Rose or something, you have some very romanticized Hollywood picture of this. This is a very incredibly intense moment. 
People can't pass because of these two demon-possessed men. And behold, they cried out, the demon-possessed, What have you to do with us? Oh, what's the word? Oh, son of God. Have you come here to torment us before... What's the last phrase there? Come on now. Come on now. Come on. Amazing. They call him the son of God. Then they say, have you come here to torment us before the time we're going to be tormented? Right? Like Satan knows his end. Again, if you're looking for further affirmation about the truth of the Bible, can I just say that when the enemy is claiming the existence of God and then recognizes that one day its own head is going to be crushed by the Savior, like that's reason enough to say this, this whole Jesus thing must be real, right? But they have no words. James is saying like even the demons would say son of God, but he's not their Lord. Are we together? That's the difference. You can say all you want, there's a God. Oh, look at the beautiful mountains. There must be a God, you know? Like, oh, look at the pretty this and the pretty that. Oh, thank you so much for this relationship. Oh, dear God, you know? You can say all these nice pleasantries about the Lord, but that doesn't make him your Lord. Are we together? Okay? When Jesus came to the disciples and he said, come and follow me, that had implications. What he was saying is, I'm now your Lord. You're no longer holding the steering wheel. When I say go, you go. And so together we will journey. Uh, that's not what the demons were doing. The demons said all, all day long, like, you exist, you're the son of God, but that doesn't mean we're going to follow you, you're not our Lord. So I want to ask you one of the uh, toughest questions I've asked in several months. I'll fire the laser here. Are you aligned with the disciples or the demons? I know it's kind of a tough way to phrase it. Do you find yourself... Uh, Claiming the existence of God, but he's really not your Lord. You're your own Lord. That would be very consistent with uh, the demons in the scripture. Or do you find yourself uh, very much aligned with the disciples? They followed Christ. They certainly struggled. But you know what? They never threw in the towel. The Lord kept moving. They kept following. Yes, they had their bumps along the way like many of us. However, post-cross, they rested in his grace and then the Spirit came on, and then it was go time. Are we together? Are you more aligned with the disciples or the demons? Uh, I pray tonight that as we continue to journey, that you recognize no matter how uh, or where you're at in this question, that the day of salvation and grace is now, right? I was telling a brother who was uh, confessing some sin to me earlier tonight, feeling bad about it. He was like so burdened and bogged down. And this is how I've changed, honestly. A couple of brothers who have been with, uh, been with me for many years. Man, I used, to, I used to even be a little bit more uh, harsh uh, on this issue. And I've just, I've just claimed victory in the grace of God like more and more. Like right now is the day of grace in the moment of salvation, right? Like it, grace upon grace, it just keeps coming. And so for those of you that came in here, you're like, there's no way he'll ever forgive me. That's exactly the point where you need to be so the gospel can prove the reality of Christ and that you're forgiven. That's the amazing picture of the gospel, right? So he goes on to affirm uh, this as he adds uh, uh, his uh, thesis statement for the 80th time. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? This isn't quite the way we talk now, right? Um, if you're ever in a marriage and you start out a discussion this way, it's not going to get you very far, right? <laughs> uh, hey, honey, uh, I, you're foolish, and I'd like to discuss your foolishness with you. Can you come on over here <laughs> so we can chat uh, by the fire with uh, that's not working. Now, the amazing thing about the Bible is truth is truth. 
and I believe very intentional in James's case. I believe he uses these words um, very poignantly. Uh, the Greek word for foolish is better empty, devoid of truth. Uh, the better word for useless is just it has no worth. So let, let's rephrase it now. Do you want to be shown, you devoid of true person, the faith apart from works is absolutely worthless. It has no value or gain. Do you want to be reminded of that? Now, uh, for me, this is like, again, the 80th time in this passage. That's a bit of an exaggeration. How much he keeps reiterating, faith without works is dead. And my question is, why so much reiteration? Uh, why is it that when we turn to darkness and we start feeding from the faucet of our flesh, and we find ourselves indulging in whatever it may be, and we sit there in the moments after the recognition that we have failed and fallen short, why is it that as often as sin overpromises and underdelivers, how is it that we can get to that point, taste the wretchedness of emptiness, Realize again it has nothing to provide. How is it that we can find ourselves back there after an hour? How is it that we can sit there in all of our pain? Realizing again this didn't provide. It said it would. I thought it would. But here I find myself again empty. It didn't do what it said it would do. I created this fantasy in my mind. I thought this might be the outcome. And every time it never comes through. You, you may be like, well, maybe it did for five minutes or a day or this relationship lasted six months. But in the end, it will always fall short. That's what sin does. It overpromises and underdelivers. That's what it does. So why does James keep reiterating? Why do we keep going back? Next scripture, this Proverbs really sums it up. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Why James is reiterating this over and over and over? Because we are like dogs who return to their vomit. I don't like dogs and I don't like vomit. This is a really wretched verse. You know what I'm saying? I, uh, it was a really crazy night of our life. Uh, a couple months ago, I'd come home from Ecuador. And uh, the flu bug was starting to go around uh, the church a bit. And when, when the flu bug starts to go around the church, you're just kind of like, you're praying a lot, you know, like, Lord, please. And then one night, uh, Heidi said, I, I don't feel so good. And, like, right at that moment, I'm like, oh, no, you know. And, and she, and I'm going to try to save you some of the details here, but um, she, be, like, she begins to vomit a lot, you know what I mean? Like, it's nasty, it's gross. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, when one person in your family gets the flu, you're thinking in your mind, though, you're trying to be comforting to everyone else. You're like, I'm going to get mine, like, here pretty soon. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is coming. Uh, we laid our kids down to bed. An hour later, I was helping Heidi, and I hear uh, a pitter-patter down the steps from upstairs. Here comes my daughter with uh, vomit all down the front of her. And so I begin now to clean up uh, my wife and my daughter. Uh, an hour later, after both of them are down for the count, uh, I hear a cry from my youngest uh, bedroom, and I'm like, no, seriously, and I go up, vomit all over the place, um, <laughs> the black plague of death had hit my home, <laughs> and seriously, listen, you're trying to be supportive, right, you're trying to be supportive, you're trying to, li listen, it's all going to be okay, but in your mind, you're thinking, I am going to get this, and it's just a matter of time, <laughs> I've got vomit all over me, like it's in my fingernails, like it's just a matter of time, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
And um, so, sure enough, right, week later, and I got to the five-day point, I'm like, I'm good. Like, God has worked a miracle. Day seven, right? <laughs> and you know, like, you psych yourself up, right? You, you start to feel that way, and you're like, no, right? <laughs> anyway, um, so got the flu up all night, horrible, like, is there ever a point when you get the flu where you're, you're, you're thinking, has any of you ever done this? Like, God, just take me now. Like, just <laughs> end it. Have you, I remember feeling that way, and I'm going to spare you all the details. There were many. But, there, but there, there was a point where it was so bad. It was like 4 a.m., and I was like, Lord, like, please, just take me into your arms. Like, I am ready to go, you know. <laughs> but, but as you sit there in the moment of all of that, And to think how we would go back to that. Like how we would live like we're wanting that. Guys and girls, this is what I don't understand about um, and the mentality that we don't have in terms of our porn and and sexual addiction. Like it, it never provides. And yet we continually find ourselves going back to it. Though every, every time, right, it's the, same, it's the same outcome. Like this didn't do. Those of you who are in sexually charged relationships, those of you that are turning the bottle, like whatever it is, in your mind it's like, and this is going to bring me acceptance, and this is going to bring me that, and this will finally do this. And you know what we prove over and over and over? That we're just like a dog. We're, we're actually turning to the thing that is so incredibly disgusting and inevitably revealing what James is saying, like, then, then what, what saith that about your life? Like, yeah, you're going to struggle and, and at times fail and fall short, but those who are followers of Christ, God is a phenomenal farmer and He is producing fruit. And so what He's saying is, listen, you want to be shown, you want some more examples, you want a case study of faith without works is dead? He says, no problem, I, I have it for you. In the uh, Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons of Father Abraham, right? James 2 verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed what? By his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and say this up front. Really, really weighty passage. Okay? I'm going to go slow. I'm going to keep all of us together in the hopes that we can understand what he's saying. We, is that cool? All right. The first thing we need to do is understand what he's saying in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? We need to understand justified. The Greek word, the doctrinal understanding of justified, is being rendered as righteous, being seen as innocent, more plainly being accepted by God. Fair enough? When we're justified by God, God is saying, you are mine. Judgment has been made. I've seen you through the eyes of my son Jesus. And so because of that, I know you were a sinner. Because of Christ, now you're seen as my kid. Rendered as righteous. And you have to be righteous to be in communion with God. Are we together? And it's only because of the righteousness of Christ that we can approach God. So, he's saying... Was not Abraham our father justified by works? 
Was he accepted by God because of what he did? God approved of his obedience in, what's the quote, when he offered up his son Isaac. Those of you that don't know the story, interesting story, Genesis 22, we just studied this in Hebrews 11. God calls Abraham, after he's been waiting for a long time for the son Isaac, to actually take him up and sacrifice him on a hill. Now, uh, for those of you that have children, or those of you that can picture having children, or those of you that hate children, please, you can at least understand this. That would be a tough moment, right? He calls him to take his son up and sacrifice him. On the way up the mountain, Isaac asks, hey, dad, where is the sacrifice? For those of you that know and love the story, Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice, son. Not wavering, steadfast, taking the step of faith, understanding the Lord's teaching about trust. Powerful, powerful. He gets his son on the altar, binds him, lays him on there. He's getting ready to kill his son, to sacrifice his son. And God stops it all and provides the sacrifice from the thistles and says, Listen, you don't need to kill Isaac because Isaac's blood won't do what Jesus' will. Powerful story. And so what James is saying is, his works showed that he was righteous in the eyes of God. In fact, he affirms that in verse 22. You see that faith, back to verse 22, please. Back uh, to verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So James is saying that Abraham's works made him acceptable to God. That kind of creates a problem, doesn't it? If you know your scripture at all, you would be thinking in your mind right now, hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. I thought that our works don't do anything. Hold on to that thought. Here's what Paul says in Romans. This is what people think that Paul and, and James are at odds. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul's going, it seems, against James. Saying, no, 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 it's not by works that we're seen as justified. It's by faith, faith alone. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Now, stay with me here. It appears right now that James is saying that Abraham is seen as innocent, justified, righteous in the eyes of God because of his works. Seems like Paul is criticizing that. But both James and Paul quote the same verse. Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. The question is, where is that verse? Genesis 15, 6. Let's start in verse 5, though. And he brought him outside, God, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you were able to number them, right? Like, that would be an interesting challenge from God. So, uh, go ahead and start counting, right? Let's see how you... One, two, skip a few, a million, like, I don't know, right? <laughs> then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And, you know, I can picture Abraham being like, seriously, whoa, we've got to get to work here. This is going to be interesting. And, <laughs> and he believed, and he believed the Lord. Here's this verse. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, in the example that James was giving, he was talking about what passage? Genesis, what did I say? 22. And here, and James quotes Genesis 15. That means believing and counting it to him as righteousness happens before James is accrediting his works and his righteousness. Does that make sense? Let me take one step back. Paul would say amen to James and James say amen to Paul. Here's why. 
James is assuming that works and faith have to be connected. And so when James writes that it's works that justified Abraham, he knows that his readers would understand that he's the father of what? The father of faith. He's writing to a Jewish audience that know the Bible. Are we together? They know the Old Testament. They know Abraham was a faithful man. And so James is saying, yes, he's justified by his works because it's a proof of his faith. So James would say, faith without works is dead, and we're saved by grace through faith. Does that make sense? Paul, who writes to a Gentile audience, an audience who mostly had never heard of the Scripture before, has to build the foundation. And the foundation is, you trust in the Lord, He gives you His Spirit, and then works are the product of that. Where James made some assumptions otherwise. So both would say each other are accurate and both are saying exactly the same thing that Paul sums up in Galatians 2 when he says this. I love this text. Or, um, go back to, uh, uh, go to Galatians 2, or Galatians, Galatians, there you go. Uh, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in what? Jesus Christ. James would say amen to that. Are we together? Again, some of you may be like, I... I don't understand what, much of what you're saying. Let me sum up this way. Christ is everything, okay? Both Paul and James are saying together, you believe in Jesus because of Jesus' perfection and righteousness, then you are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. And it's only through Christ. Your works are evidence of your faith. Therefore, faith without works is dead. He reiterates that in verse 24. Go back to uh, verse 24 there. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, if it's by faith alone, then you're just like the demons. Oh yeah, God exists, but there's no fruit. There's no life. And that's what many of you have done. You've convinced yourself that somehow you can confess with your mouth and not live out any semblance of faith. Uh, that, my friends, is in error. And you're just like... The demons. Did he just call me Satan? No, not specifically. Give me time, right? You'll get that later. Next slide. Verse 25 says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? He gives another case study. Rahab the prostitute in Joshua 2 takes on two spies who were sent from Joshua to scout the land. It would appear that she's a pagan, certainly not living very righteously. However, in that conversation with the spies, she communicates that God is real and then houses the spies and help them get out, though the king was after them. Again, James' readers would know Rahab the prostitute, okay? And so as he's reiterating this, he's like, look, even Rahab the prostitute's works and faith were connected. She said that God was God, and then she acted it out. She lived it in such a way that we would all say it was real. He closes with verse 26. He says this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The reason I said give me time I don't know if you're like me, but there's been moments where I felt dead, like a demon. There's been moments where I felt empty, worthless, useless. There's no hope. There's nothing happening here. What am I doing here? 
It seems pointless. Imagine living in eternity like that. That's the way the demons feel. They know they're in. They know their demise. Yet they have to live every day believing the existence of God and yet not having the freedom that comes in Christ. Imagine that. Some of you don't have to imagine very hard because you know exactly what that feels like. That's the way you feel now. Hopeless, empty, done, distraught. So I hope here as we close up that this will be encouraging. I want to get back to where we started. Jesus' conversation in Matthew 7. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot, listen, please see this. I was telling my law family on Sunday, the Bible is true or not. Agree? It's either true or not. The words are either true or not. Here's what Jesus says. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. I mean, he either said it or he didn't, right? He's not saying that they won't struggle. He's saying, again, reiterating, true followers of Christ will be quick to repent. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. That's where I fear many of you are at, uh, encapsulated by this image. Now, if I were to walk up to this tree, left to right, if it was 3D, and I was looking up at it, it would have the appearance that it was doing okay. Pretty green, fairly lush, certainly some leaves there. But if I had enough time, enough care, enough concern, enough interest to simply walk around the tree, get a panorama, get a 360 view of it, I would find myself seeing that what was on the other side was just a facade to actually what's behind it. And when I'm behind it, I can see if this fruit was bearing, I was bearing any fruit, that initially the fruit looked shiny, it looked polished. But all of a sudden when I got to the back of it, I could see that it was simply painted, that the other side of the fruit was blackened, it was dark. In fact, there was nothing there, it was ready to fall, that everything that was on the other side was simply a facade. It was dead. Uh, I fear that this is many of your life. Uh, That you're putting on that it's all okay. And you're polishing and you're painting. And you've convinced yourself in your mind that because of the fruit of your words and the fruit of your attendance or your participation or the fruit of being better than that guy, that somehow you're living but you know that you're dead. You know that, like in this setting, you go home still empty. Still like wondering when all this will be over, wondering what will finally bring life. The promise of the scripture is that faith without works is dead because what faith does is it puts the spirit in us and creates life. And all of a sudden, this tree goes from being a tree that appears half living and half dead, and it becomes fully alive. Are we together? I uh, bought a house in St. Charles four years ago, and uh, we bought it. We were really excited. Houses in downtown St. Charles have a lot of character, okay? Uh, A lot of arches, a lot of cool stuff. They're also old. We bought it. Uh, I'm not a handyman, so I was concerned 
things you know, might be dicey for me. First big rain, two months into our house, come downstairs, and they had had a bunny, and it kind of smelled like a wet bunny downstairs, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't think this is supposed to smell like this. And uh, I, I start to feel the carpet around the wall completely soaked. So instantly I'm like, seriously? Like, how can this happen? So I called, you know, whatever professional wall guy, and uh, <laughs> I called him and, uh, hey, can you come check this out? So he opens up a piece of my drywall. I didn't know what that was initially. That's what he called it. Um, he opens up a piece of my wall, and uh, what it revealed was that my entire wall was cracked, entire wall. And here was my question to him, in all innocence. I was like, how did they not know this? And he looked at me and he said, they, they knew it. Like they had put like new carpet pad down there. You know, they had tried to make it look nice so they could sell it. Get past 30 days and, you know, we can't claim anything. Another hard rain comes. All of a sudden I look up in my kitchen. I'm like, what is that? There was a leak coming down from the ceiling. And honestly, after four years, we, like we just finally fixed it. And uh, that takes me a while to get around to things sometimes around my house. And the guy came and I was like, hey man, this has been here. I don't know. He's like, yeah, look at this right here. He's like, they tried to like just patch this up with some plaster, knowing full well that it wouldn't take care of the leak. Here's what I know about the gospel is it's not patchwork. See what I'm saying? Like as much as you feel like you can just come in and, you know, little by little, you can just, you know, give God just a little, just a little piece of you. That maybe, maybe just maybe if he could just heal this little piece. Listen, you can't just get it nice and think that the problems go away. They're still there outside of the power of Christ. But in Jesus, all of a sudden, the old become new. All of a sudden, the death becomes life. All of a sudden, the bad tree that couldn't produce good fruit, all of a sudden is producing good fruit and works because the Spirit is at work in us. You see what I'm saying? All of a sudden, all the dead, the death, the pain that you feel, gets surmised in the person of Christ. That's why I thought it fitting to end with these words from Jesus. He says this in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's good to know, isn't it? Isn't it good to know? I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You see? With him you bear good fruit. Without him nothing. You're nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. They'll have the same fate as the demons who... All they say is that God exists, but there's no lordship of Christ in their life. Everyone who finds themselves in that same way will have the same fate. And in your mind, some of you are thinking, here we go, hellfire and brimstone. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. When you're teaching the words of Jesus, you can like, pick out convenient things that feel like Oprah and feel nice. Or you can communicate the words that Jesus said. Here's the reality. Without him, you're nothing. And you're destined to the same death as Satan. Right? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. Please see this, that you bear much fruit and so what? Prove to be my disciples. And now all of James makes sense. By bearing fruit, empowered by the Spirit, you're proving that you're His disciple.
It's evidence. It's not saving you. It's showing who you really are. Stand up with me. I'm tired of going back to the vomit. I'm tired of returning to the place that has never fulfilled. I'm tired of thinking that I have enough strength by myself to get me out of that. And what I'm reminded of in this moment, and I pray you, is that in Him, and in His words, and in His grace, all of the emptiness, all of the lack of fruit, all of the death, all of the decay, all of the facade, it can go away. It's possible. Those of you that have been putting on where just kind of polishing and painting every once in a while, dressing it up, but behind it is a big cracked wall. Listen, the gospel isn't patchwork. It is wholly restoring. Here on this earth, we get glimpses and pictures, and eventually it will all be made right. That's what the gospel does. And so my invitation to all of us, including myself, is to stop running from the Lord and to start running to the Lord, and we will show ourselves to be His disciples by the works that come forth out of our life, empowered by the Spirit of God. And that is life. He goes on to say, all of this is because I love you. In fact, this verse ends, that my joy may be complete in you. And when I'm living, that's when I'm joyful. And when I'm empty, that's when I know I'm done. What does it look like tonight for you? Just to confess with your mouth, Lord, I'm tired of going back to the death. Help me know what it looks like to rest in your life. And some of you for the first time, Others of you, it's a relinquishing of all the stuff that is hindering the good fruit that's to be shown in your life. Last thing, listen. I have a tremendous care for all of you. I really do. I long for your growth. But you need to know this. At the end of the day, it comes back to the exact same question that it will every day. Is all of this is who God said He is. Is that true? Is who, it, is who He said He was? Is that true? Is the Bible truth? Are all these words fable or fairy tale, or are they life-changing? And what I can tell you from my experience is, His words never return void. These same words that feel just like black on paper are absolutely conforming my heart, and I pray in your life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that we have nothing to offer you. I thank you that we have nothing to give you that will make us look good. And so, God, I just thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you, God, that right now I and my brothers and sisters can rest in him. And that because of him, we can be seen as, as acceptable. God, we don't deserve that, and I'm just grateful for it. 
I pray tonight, God, for a greater understanding that our faith and our works have to be combined. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that right now in this room, that your spirit would be strong. That conviction would be heavy. And that we would long, God, in the depths of our heart to not be aligned with those who merely say you exist. God, help us tonight to call you Lord. Lord.